I think this is a discussion that not enough people potentially have in right. around loss and grief and death and all of that. And being stuff. able to talk about it. Yes. And not being scared of it. And not being scared of it. Perhaps that's a really good place to start because my, you know, like my structure in and around this whole idea of life and death, what I often come up against is this idea that death is the opposite of life. Not and on the continuum of life. Not on the continuum. And so, you know, I've, I've fallen into discussions where like, my idea is life is what happens in between birth and death. Mm-hmm. And you can't have that in between bit without the beginning and the end. Right. It's the dash on the headstone, right? Yeah. Everything is that everything in that dash is what we do. And that's what's got to count. But you're going to get to the other side at some point. You've got to. That's, yeah. you don't there's get there's to no have... choice. No. <laughs> No, and, and God forbid Elon or one of these people works out internal life because that will uh, that will bring about some really interesting. Oh, please, no. I want a vacation at some point. <laughs> so I've earned my rest. My first wife used to say, you know what? I don't need to sleep right now. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Let's go get stuff done. Right? She was right. Yeah. It works. Very, very John Bon Jovi. Yes. <laughs> I remember that song coming out. Oh, what is it? Live while I'm alive, sleep while I'm dead. Mm-hmm. And I thought, but but where do you get the energy from, John? <laughs> this ah. is where you get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. It's in the can. <laughs> it's in the can. It's in the can. So I, I mean, I, maybe, maybe me learning a little bit more about how you came to be writing about the big questions about grief and death and sorrow and all of that and dying and all those things yeah Yeah. I'm really interested I'm fascinated by it the whole the whole gamut of how we ignore it push it away how we in the western world especially have decided that this is a taboo subject and you should be done in two weeks Mm. somebody dies two weeks later funeral's over back to work yeah that's so true. Who thought that up? I don't know. Maybe that's an industrial kind of thing. Where we're sorry, you don't have time. You need to go back to work and, and, and make stuff now. Right, right. Yeah, you're the measure of your worth and that's the measure of your work and get back. Yeah, and then there's some, some judgment on the other side where why haven't you cried? You haven't, you haven't grieved in the way that I feel that you should grieve. You're not following the widow rules and the grief rules. Which is what I want you to do in your grief, not what you need to do. Mm. It's a very individual thing, isn't it? It's a very individual thing, but everybody else's rules apply to everybody else. And even if they've never had that loss, then their rules still apply. And if you break their rules, then you're in trouble, but you don't know you're in trouble because you don't know what their rules are. Not that you care in the first place if you're really grieving your own way. How's that for a mouthful? That's not confusing at all. So yeah, sorry. I'm I'm going to open my ears and close my mouth. I'm very interested in how you came into this work, writing books, helping people, putting the information out there for people to pick up. So um, long ago, I was raised by parents who were 
older than the average bear. At least my dad was, he was um, almost 11 years, my mom's senior. And so I always had the, the older family and my grandparents' generations were very large. And so there were a lot of relatives who aged and died. And we were part of that. If we were nearby, we went. So we were part of illnesses. We were part of deaths. We went to funerals. I don't remember a time where we didn't. Mm -hmm. And when our pets died, we live on a hillside um, in Southern California. So if one of the cats killed a mouse, there was a funeral because we were children. So there's actually pictures of me conducting funerals when I was a kid for the neighbor kids and everyone's standing there holding a flower. And, you know, we've got a little hole dug. Um, so to me, death has always been an organic part of life. And then when AIDS hit, um, I was just coming out of college um, or in college. And I was the first social worker in our area for our local AIDS project. And we just got a name for AIDS at that time. and. Basically, what we did was pull people out of hospitals whose families wouldn't take them and put them in our cars and drove them to a shelter we opened um, in an older house where we took care of people and nurtured them until they died because everybody died. You had, you know, two weeks to four months. There were very few long-term survivors. Mm. And so there were, we were surrounded by that. And you have to learn how to surf those losses and grieve in that moment and then go on and be your best self for the next person mm -hmm. and to bring humor in because humor is what brings you through and lightens the load for other people who are sick or the people who are absorbing the losses. And so that was, you know, I was barely 21 at that time, 22. So that was where my, my world around how we do, really do as adults, grief, death, loss, illness came from. Mm -hmm. um, and then after being a social worker for child welfare for a while, I went to hospice, which is truly my heart of hearts. And I worked in hospice in two states and it was my element. I got to help people as they and families prepare to die. I helped facilitate the goodbyes. I sat through the dying process. I sat for the death. I did the grief. I put together a grief program for local elementary schools, and I got to do that and turn grief into something that was a time for remembering and for growth and for taking those people with them mm -hmm. and into what they had now to do in their lives and to honor those people in their life as it was as they were going to grow up. Um, and then later I went back to hospice after my first wife died and um, opened my private practice as well. And now my private practice, my part of the practice is entirely um, end of life, chronic illness, uh, dementia, and death and dying and grief and loss. That is what I do. And I teach that as well for therapists because we're really terrible at grief and loss by and large because they don't teach it in grad school. And nobody knows about dementia because that's definitely not covered in grad school. And it needs to be. And so because I have a private practice, I have the luxury of being able to do those things and write the books. But in between there, I also was married for 23 years to Linda. And 10 years into our marriage, when I was working for hospice the first time, she went to get a routine mammogram and called me four hours later and said, I don't know where I am. I'm on the side of the road. You got to help me get home and you need to come home. 
And she got in for the mammogram. By the time she left, she'd had an ultrasound. They called in a surgeon. She had a definite mass. It wasn't very big. And it's right on her chest wall where you can't find it unless you're really poking. But it had already metastasized. And so she brought her scans home. And um, there were some barriers to getting her into the surgeon right away. And I pulled all my hospice ticks in and took the scans to my doctor at hospice and he called all the people. And we were in surgery less than a week later and um, she wanted a full mastectomy. They tried to tell her no. She ended up with a full mastectomy because of what they found. And then they tried to stop her from getting to the oncologist at first. And again, pulled all the ticks in and we were in the oncologist's office about four days later. And Dr. Friley looked at us and looked at her and said, I really hate to say this. We're going to throw everything at you, but it's July now and you're going to be dead by Christmas. And there's this, you know, you feel like there's, you're in an elevator and the floor just sort of fell out. And I looked at Linda's face and I realized she was going to be the fighter. And that's what she said. I'm going to fight this. I don't want to hear anymore. Tell Jill, she's going to do the research and we're going to get through this. And they did, they threw everything at her and she died cancer free. But uh, 11 years later, she died of pulmonary fibrosis and right-sided heart failure as a result of one of the drugs that you get when you have major league breast cancer. Mm -hmm. We got 10 extra years. I'm not faulting anyone in oncology. I am grateful for that time. It gave us the time to move back to California and adopt our kids and get life restarted. It gave me my private practice, which has carried us since then. But yeah, breast cancer didn't kill her, but the chemo did. And then while she was dying, um, we had hospice because I kept asking for it. And finally her pulmonologist looked at her and they were friends from the ER. Linda was a nurse. And he said, you know, you're going to be pushing up Daisy soon. We need to get you on hospice. I'm like, well, it is about freaking time. Thank you very much. I could have told you that. So we got hospice going and her hospice nurse walked in and she was dressed all in black with a very starched white jacket. And she said, you know, it's the man in black's birthday. I'm like, who the hell is the man in black? She's like, you don't know Johnny Cash? Oh yeah, well, I guess I do. That's probably not my cup of tea, but yeah, I do. Well, it's his birthday today. It's a good day to meet somebody. And she went up and met Linda. And by the time they were 15 minutes in, they're both like, peace out, Jill. You don't need to be here. We got this nurse to nurse. We got this. And they bonded. They bonded like I'd never seen Linda bond with anyone before. They had the same sense of humor. They had the same parents. They had the same background. They're both sort of salt of the earth, dig in and get stuff done, people. And Casper could tell Linda to behave herself. So Linda had fallen the day before because she refused to use her walker or her cane. And she was retaining massive amounts of fluid because when your heart's not pumping, the fluid stays. And she had gashed herself. And Casper looked at it while I was there and she said, what is that from? And Linda said, oh, a little accident. I said, the hell? No, she fell. She won't use the walker. And she said, I don't want to use the walker. And Casper said, I know you don't want to use the walker. Use the walker. I'm putting it in front of you. Don't do this again. 
So she was that nurse. We had another nurse who walked in and said, now you need to eat vegan and no more chocolate and blah, da, 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 da. And Casper's like, oh no, no, no. We're going to, we're going to get you all the M&Ms you want and all the ice cream. Now, when you've got pulmonary fibrosis, you can't breathe. So you either breathe or you eat. You can't do both because mm-hmm. there's not enough space. So they just settled on drinking Yoohoo's, which are an American weird way of making some kind of chocolate milk soda-ish thing that I can't stand, but they both loved. And they hung out together. And by the time Linda was dying, she kept saying, Jill's got to marry Casper. I can't die unless Jill and Casper are going to get married. I was like, I don't know who you are, but you're my wife. I'm married to you. You're about to make me a widow. You're leaving me with three teenage girls. Are No. She said, I'm leaving you with three teenage girls. Yes. And she knows them and she likes them. And, you know, that's more than some people can say. So, and she knows we have like six cats and four dogs and, you know, whatever else we had in the house at the time. And uh, yeah, so we agreed we'd meet for coffee before she died. Casper was in fact there the day Linda died. She was the one who told me to turn off the oxygen that she was no longer there. Her body was just too young to realize that she had transitioned. Um, and we went out for coffee secretly because people don't like it when you break rules. And I was breaking the widow rules just by having coffee with her. Mm. And it turned out Linda was right. We were well-matched and we ended up sneaking around for a while because widow rules, you don't want to break them. And um, eventually the kids figured out that I'd changed names on my phone and there was a code and that they were going to church, church group stuff a whole lot more often because that was giving me time to get away. And that I had some of the elder church ladies in on this and we got married and we had a good three and a half years, but for the fact that Louis body dementia showed up and that's why it was only three and a half years. So she ended up with the same disease that caused Robin Williams to take his life. Yes. And uh, if you're going to get dementia, that's not the one you want. You know, I, I don't suggest volunteering for any of them, but that one in frontotemporal are the two you really don't want. And Louis has, and, and frontotemporal, you don't lose your memory or you lose it in bits, but then it comes back. So you're aware that you've lost your memory. You were aware that you were psychotic because it comes with huge psychotic features. And then you check back in and you remember it. And it's devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy in Great Britain named Norm Mack who has written extensively about having Louis body. Um, and he's published several books and it's an insight for anybody who's had dementia because you can see what it's like for that gradual decomposition and the gradual losing, but he can describe it because he gets the words back. Wow. So he died after about three and a half years of battling a disease that it took us to the last six months to get diagnosed. Louis, it usually takes about five neurologists to get it right. There's no blood test for it. You have to have a, an x-ray person who knows, a radiologist who knows exactly what they're looking for because it's easy to miss. And um, Linda had a very calm death. Casper was not calm until probably the last two hours of her life. The rest of the time it was some quiet and otherwise pure chaos. Um, but uh, while she was in that chaos, I was writing blogs and I wrote them when both of them were sick and both of them were dying. And after Linda's death, because I worked full time, I had three kids and I didn't have time for other people. So I wrote blogs. If you wanted to know what's going on, 
Here's the blog. You can read about it. If you don't, that's on you, but I'm not going to take time to explain it. And I'm not returning your phone call. That's still the rule. I don't return phone calls. I return text messages and emails. Um, And so one of the people who saw all of these going up and saw how hard it was and that I had fewer people helping. I had my, my girlfriend's group, childhood girlfriends. We've been together for 50 years now. We still see each other every Wednesday night. Um, and I had, you know, Casper's brother came and stayed with us. I had my kids and I had a few others, but a lot of other people voted with their feet. When I broke the rules, they exited. And Linda and I had met with the funeral director to make her plans for her cremation. And then we'd met with the same funeral director for Casper's. And that funeral director started coming around. She'd come to our wedding, as a matter of fact. And um, yeah, that's now who I'm married to. So I've been married three times. I buried two spouses and I'm married to the funeral director who took both of them into her care when they died. Not many people can claim that. No, that might be the most unique story I've heard this year, if not in a very long time. And we're still standing and we're still smiling. And for us, death and dying is part of life because, you know, funeral director, she's a mortician, she embalms. She's Mm -hmm. part of the National Disaster Mortuary Team. So she's been called out for COVID. She was in those um, refrigerator trucks in New York that made the news all over the world. She was deployed to that. So we live a quiet life, except that I work a lot online and do a lot of teaching to try and help therapists not be stupid because I ran into two grief therapists who didn't do grief and didn't do it well. And um, the rest of the time we take care of our elder parents and rescue senior poodles and give them hospice at the end of their lives. Yeah. It's magnificent. It's <laughs> yeah. Magnificent. It's, a, it's a nice life. It's a good life. Well, and this- it's good to be able to help people with dying and grief and, and to normalize that in dementia and make it approachable. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how you've, you've come across two areas that are, uh, massive taboos in dementia and well mental illness and mental decline in in all of its facets are still taboo right which in my work is astounding Uh, i work with men trying to get through that hard outer shell of macho-ness and blokiness to that it's okay to be vulnerable and open and let's get you out of your head and into your heart and tap out because we men are taught you have hammer chip away at it yeah yeah. yeah, we can't. Men don't grieve well sometimes because they've been taught. But we have not been taught to, to allow be, it. Oh well, don't and you know, boys don't cry and uh, mm-hmm. be strong for your mum and all of this kind of stuff. And they're still telling that to little people. Of course they are. Stop it! Just stop it. it. It's. I, I find that this and a lot of things is exactly what you talked about at the start. Is these implicit, if not explicit, rules around how you should do and how you should behave always and there are rules and there are and nobody writes them down to tell you about them no but i I did i have found that what i did with the the deaths in my family and friends families is you learn by osmosis by watching other people as a as a younger person right and you are not taken into the okayness of the discomfort and the pain and the anguish and the sorrow. It's almost like cry for a little while and then it's okay. And you need right. and then you need to move on. 
And I think you were saying earlier, you've got 14 days and then get on with it. Right. The funeral's over. Be done. Right. And that's that's not normal. There are ways to get through grief and grow out of it and and to reorganize your life and and to take them with you. But you can't do that if you're like stopped up at the okay, the funeral's over. Now I got to put on the smile and keep going or put on a strong face and keep going. That that doesn't help. That's denying all of the other stuff that comes with it. Like there can be anger and there can be guilt and shame and all of these very strong emotions that the world calls negative, but they're no fear and uh uh-huh. it's fear and um anxiety that are the two, and then guilt. Those are the ones that come through every person I've ever worked with. Mm. And when I do surveys internationally, those are the ones that always come up. And it doesn't matter what the guilt is about, you know, whether it's decisions made during the dying process or Mm. the illness process or after there's always guilt and fear. And men don't like those. Oh, no, but we're good at it. Women don't either. Oh, yeah. Men are really good at it and not really good at talking about it. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. I wanted to ask you about therapists and their inability in and around grief and dying. I've worked in clinic before as a psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, and my approach has always been I don't force the process on anyone. My, my, right. teachers, my teachers told me it's not about process, it's about the person who's sitting in front of you. As soon as you walk in and you're the therapist and they're the client, you've already lost the game. So it's, it's like hold the space to start off with. When so you start I have, trying to pick out tricks from grad school in the back of your head, you're done. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. Because one of the big questions I asked was, like, but, but what do I do? What's the, what's the technique? And you're looking, at, you're looking at this the wrong way. This is the technique. You, you are, you're already part of it. But the, yes. the, ther- the therapy is the therapy. They came to see you. It's already going. You don't need to go and work out how to work it out. So it's interesting that you bring up that therapists are, for want of a better term, bad at this. And there is a lack of education. I'd be interested, because I have opinions on this and it doesn't mean that they're right, well, what would you say is a good starting point for someone who's in therapy, whether they're counselling, whether they're social workers, whether they're psychologists, just as a starting point to get better at managing someone who comes in dealing with grief? Get yourself into some kind of grief education program and expose yourself to death and dying because you can't do grief work unless you know what dying looks like, Mm. sounds like, smells like, because a lot of what people come in with, if they've been present for the death is a misunderstanding of what they've just been through. They've heard things, they didn't understand them. They heard guttural sounds and they thought their loved one was drowning when in fact their loved one was laying prone and their, the saliva in their throat was sitting on their vocal cords and it makes a terrible noise, but Mm -hmm. their loved one wasn't hearing it and wasn't struggling, but they were, Mm -hmm. or they were watching Shane Stokes breathing, which is that end of life breathing where you're, you know, there looks like a gasp and then it looks like apnea. And it's just simply the brain disconnecting from the lungs. And they interpret it as they were gasping for air. Mm. And then that's the stuff of nightmares. Who wants to think their loved one was gasping for air at the end of their life? Because that translates into fear. So you have to know the dying process. Yeah. 
to be able to do the grief process. And I stand firm on that. And we've had so many people die of COVID in hospitals in this last, oh, it's, good God, it's almost two years now. Um, and those folks by and large were not at home. They were in hospital and nobody was with them except the staff. And what you have is the images you've seen on the news or on you know some television show, which may or may not be accurate. And so we fill in our heads what we don't know. Mm, and we have blank. to be able to, we have to decode that with our clients and then help them figure out what was real and understand if their loved one was sedated while they were ventilated, then they weren't struggling. They were sedated, they were peaceful, right? And you know, maybe reach out to the hospital and talk to whoever was on staff that day when you get a chance. Those things, if you don't know that part, if you don't know medical, you can't do grief effectively in my mm. not so humble opinion because you haven't been present. So, you know, volunteer to a hospice training and find out what it's like when someone's dying and then approach grief from the perspective of this is a time for finishing up what's left, the things that didn't get said, the apologies, the important things, the plans that were made that you didn't get to finish and how you're going to do them or not do them now, because there's sort of amount of permission to not do some things, right? Yeah. Like Linda wanted me to give our 13 year old ADHD wild child, her spider motorcycle. And if you don't know spider motorcycles, they're made in Canada and they do 200 miles an hour. And mm -hmm. there was no way on God's green earth that child was going to get that motorcycle. I sold the bike and I eventually spent that money on a car for her. And I thought that was fair, right? But we, don't, we wanna make sure that, you know, we can be okay with those decisions we make, right? And those things have to get worked out. Mm. Otherwise they keep you back in grief and your client can't finish and move into growth. And they also need some help figuring out who really died. Because when you go to a funeral, sometimes you, you don't even know who they're talking about. Really? They, they were that perfect? And that, that's, that's not who I remember, mm. right? And so then you're, that griever is sort of told at the funeral or the memorial who they're supposed to be remembering. And there's a lot that goes on behind closed doors, good and sometimes negative, that make up the sum total of the person in the relationship. And that's who they're grieving. But they can't if they have to buy into that fake image. And buying into the narrative, yeah. That you got to get the, you got to know how to do those things. I'm not saying you have to have, you know, hugely advanced training. There are lots of us who do training. Um, and there's a lot of different schools of thought. And you do the one that fits you and your personality style. I am very solution focused. And my clients find me because I'm very in your face solution focused on my website, in my information, in my books. You know, I am right there. There are other people who want something softer and gentler, and there are people who do that. But you got to have the training. Mm. If you're a therapist, I would really recommend you hop into um, a Facebook group called Private Practice Grief. It's not mine. It's run by a woman named Debbie Jenkins Frankel. And there's grief therapists from all over the world in there. And if you need something, all you have to do is ask and somebody will step in. And that's what we need. We need to be able to support each other in doing this better. Mm. 
No, that was probably too much that. of an answer, wasn't it? It was like a like. No, it's, per- it's perfect. And the wonderful thing about it is that there are opportunities for learning, but there's also opportunities for therapists to say this is not what I'm good at. Like I don't, I I could do my best to help you. However, right. This is the person that I recommend that you go and talk to. Mm -hmm. When I was in practice, I had people asking about childhood traumas and things. And I said, look, I can hold the space for you and sit with you compassionately and help you. And yet there is this lady who is five minutes down the road and she specializes in that. So it's remiss of me to say, come and see me. Now, if you feel like you still want to talk to me, that's a different thing. Right. Right. I don't do EMDR personally. I, I had a stroke. I have a brain injury. EMDR is definitely not my cup of tea because mm-hmm. I do, I would do it badly. If I've got a client whose trauma is significant enough, I will say, you know what, let's finish our stuff. And I'm sending you on to your choice of these three people. Yes. And I want you to go get EMDR. And if you want to come back, I'm here because I'm not retiring for a while. So come on back. (laughs) But I can't do this piece and you would be better off with it. Yeah. And I think we need to be honest about that. Yes. As as people who are in the position of others coming to us for help. Right. Right. You don't want to go get your hair cut from someone who doesn't do hair. Mm. You don't want a therapist who doesn't have a a good skill set. Both times I was widowed, I went to see a therapist because, you know, we're therapists is what we do. Right. And I didn't at first. And my business partner was like, you know, Jill, it's what we do. Mm-hmm. You're doing good, but you need to go. So I did. Both of them used the miracle question on me. You don't use the miracle question on a griever because then they're going to know you don't know what you're doing. And the miracle question is now, if you woke up tomorrow morning, And everything was where it needed to be for you to feel good about where you are in this life. And, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. What would it be? Right in the middle of grief. And both times I laughed out loud and said, you don't have that kind of power. They're both in boxes or she's in a box. And for the second one, I said, and then I'd be like arrested because I'd be a bigamist. It would be awkward. So we, what are you doing well, that's, and, that's uh, coming from a place of compassion with not a, a lot of consideration. Right. What, what a griever needs is to sit down and have someone just listen. <laughs> yes. Yes. Tell me your story. Tell me what happened. And if it takes three sessions, so what? Tell me the story. Tell me the story of your life together, whether it was your child and how much you planned for them before you even knew you were pregnant or your parents and you didn't have or didn't have a good relationship or your spouse or your pet, tell me the story. And then secondly, tell me all the stupid stuff people have told you trying to be helpful because my doors are sealed. My computer is sealed. I can't tell anyone. This is where you get to let it all hang out. That's the great one. That all of the advice, all the stuff, you know what you should do. And they're in a better place. Oh, that's always a good one, isn't it? Right. Or aren't you glad they're not in pain anymore? No, I'd rather they weren't ever in pain. Let's go back that way. Mm. Let's just erase cancer and then we're all good. You've missed a step here. You did. If I get to click my fingers, I'm clicking clicking to a different reality rather than the one that you're suggesting. Right. We're going to a totally different plane. Mm. So, yeah, they need a place where they can tell that stuff because they can't complain about that at home. And if they talk about the loss process with friends, they'll correct their... Or him. No, no, no. It was like this. Okay, this is my experience. 
It take, I get to say how I remember. <laughs> it takes a um, it takes a very switched on, tuned in individual just to sit there and shut up, and to be comfortable in that space. Yeah, you don't have to fix this. Shut up. Don't say a word unless they're afraid you're not awake anymore. Otherwise, stick with it. And, and make I, sure th- make sure that if they're in your office with you, you've got a big comfy couch and you've got pillows and you've got blankets and that they can slip off their shoes if they want to and curl mm. up because when we do grief work we want to feel safe get that cushion and wrap it wrap your heart around it right right that's why i had dogs in my office and now i have dogs who sit on me while i'm in session usually right? perfect it's what people need they, yeah. they don't need a beautiful white office with you know acrylic chairs that look very chic they they need you know the big old overstuffed couch and comfort in my not humble opinion it's a beautiful opinion do you feel that one of the biggest things is people just needing to hear that it's all okay with what they're going through is all okay the way you're doing it's all okay it's normal normal Mm. they walk in and they say by and large i just need to know that i'm not crazy because of what they're feeling. Because what they're feeling, people are telling them. You know, my sister-in-law told me I haven't done all five stages yet. I haven't been angry yet. Oh, shit. Right? I'm like, okay, five stages, that's anticipatory grief. We, we don't do that here. But let me explain that theory to you. Hmm. And let's see if it fit what happened before. But no, you you don't have to be angry. You don't have to do anger. <laughs> you don't. You can be angry at your sister-in-law now for trying to push you around. But... It's such right? a pigeonhole approach, right? Well, these are the steps of grief. And if you miss one, maybe you need to go back because you haven't done grief properly. Right. And then at the end, you get to acceptance. You know what? If you've been to a funeral, you have probably accepted that they're dead. I mean, just <laughs> to, to be very blunt. Right? I mean, yeah, yeah. well, you, you did turn up and they are in the box. So acceptance yeah. is for someone who's dying, not for someone who's grieving. You know, the, the acceptance is more internal about yourself. You're accepting your own loss and how the world has changed for you. And you're taking it and recovering from it. Hmm. How am I going to do those things? You know, did I have that dad who never said, I love you? That's the thing that you needed to hear. That's what you need to work on so hmm. that you can say goodbye to that extra loss piece. And they also, grievers need to hear that every time someone dies in your life, you lose other people too. Because nobody advertises that, right? When there's a home, when there's a Hallmark movie or a BBC grief movie, they don't see that after someone dies, a few of the best friends or family members just sort of peter out and are never seen again. Fade away. But that's the reality. People exit because they're uncomfortable or they're upset or whatever. They go away, and mm. the new people feed in. And you need an astute therapist who can notice that those extra names are coming in. And you can say, wow, it sounds like somebody else, like you're creating a new support system. What's that like for you? And give them the permission to move the circles around. Yeah. That's a big part of therapy, I feel, and coaching and and the, the work that, not that it is our position to give that permission, but when the other person can receive it, Right. Freeze them so much that, oh, it's okay for me to move on or it's okay for me to talk to that person. I Mm -hmm. thought I should do this and, well, not necessarily. It's okay to not listen to that relative who's 
Oh. And instead, listen to this new friend who's walked the walk, right? Mm. They need someone to sort that out with sometimes. Yeah. Not to tell them what to do, to help them find a space to sort it out. It, it's interesting how you're talking about the, those shifts and transitions in people. My, um, geez, it, it's a, I lose track of time. My uncle passed three, four years ago. And I actually gained some of his friends into my circle. So yeah. it was almost, it was almost, I mean, I, I lost a bunch of people that I'd known through him because mm-hmm. it wasn't a tight connection. But I'm now, there are two distinct people that I'm really connected with. And they really enjoy connecting with me because I'm a link back to my uncle. Right. And I, I quite look like him as well. And you have some of his characteristics and personality, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Bit, bit, bit black sheep, uh, but I and I, I, I love these two people, and also they're a connection back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It feeds all the way around, and yeah, and that's okay. Lovely. But sometimes the griever doesn't see that as being okay. They look at that as well. But that somebody disappeared. Is there some? I must be doing this wrong. Why? Why aren't they talking to me? And they don't know that it's not about them. And so a little bit of an advising as to why that might be takes a lot of that stress off Mm. and then not needing to chase after those and to say, you know what, maybe just let them go out to that outer circle around you and let's focus on the people who are there with you. Let's do that part. It's important. And people don't recognize that. Mm. And therapists don't know that if they haven't had a loss and they haven't seen that process, they don't know that any more than anyone else. Yeah, I think there's there's just a big trap with all of these modalities in and around. It's not just therapy. I'm, not, I'm really not having a poke at therapists. Do you talk about life coaches or anything else that you want? Ministers don't know this stuff. Let's be clear. Isn't that quite amazing? Because that yeah. would have been, when you think back historically, that would have been a large part of the work. Mm-hmm. But not so much anymore. No. No. Our local rabbi is really good at it, and I'm not Jewish, but we interact a lot. She's got that. She will advise. I did a thing for the temple on Rosh Hashanah, and she was right in there with me telling it. But, you know, ministers may not know it. I know a lot of them that don't. Mm. It's so interesting to even consider that. I guess it's, it's like births, deaths, and marriages, right? I mean, right. clearly there's the spiritual education and the support structures, but when you think of the three kind of big, big life moments. events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of people of faith don't attend deaths anymore, right? They happen in hospitals, and with COVID, they're definitely not attending because they can't, right? Mm. There have been a not insignificant number of hospital chaplains who've died of COVID the last 20 years. Wow. Because they've been in there because that's where they see their role and they've gotten sick. But yeah, and I'm not digging at anyone. I'm saying we all, we, if we don't talk about this more and the conversation. make it realistic, right? Not, you know, we have Hallmark movies here. Mm-hmm. And, oh my God, they make me crazy. Because, you know, everyone comes home and it's, you know, kumbaya and the black sheep comes in and everyone's happy to see him. And, you know, afterward, everyone gets two months off to, you know, sort things out. And that's, you know, it's good in a movie. (laughs) 
It's not real. No. Well, I mean, it's about as real as a knife fight in a movie, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Like you try and fight with a knife that way. You, you got you got one second in, now you're, now you're not in the knife fight anymore. Right. <laughs> like, then you get up and dust yourself off and go to the back. Yeah, do grief the way Brad Pitt did it in that movie. That, that'll work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Do you have, and again, this is going to be a strange question because what I'm picking up for you is there is no way to do grief, right? It's all a very individual thing. Yeah. But do you have something that you offer most people in terms of like, like a permissive structure to, hey, this is what you could investigate? I use a process. I, I do have a process, but I adapt it to each person individually mm-hmm. and to where they are emotionally and where their strength space is. Um, and some people have been through just a really hard time and they just really need to be shored up over the trauma mm. um, or being let down by the medical community. There's a lot of that. Yes. Um, I, have a, I have a personal story right there. Yeah. And we have a lot of folks who are not being referred to hospice right now. And that's such a big loss because then they lose all of the education ahead of time and that really strong support system. And they're all alone if the death happens at home because they don't have someone to call. So to what's the, with them. What's the cause of a lack of referral to hospice? I don't know. I've, I talked to a good friend of mine who is a hospice doc and owns a hospice. And he said, doctors are just not referring. They're, they're just keeping them on their service longer and you know, so sometimes they've referred them the last 12 hours of life, which is not super helpful. No. Right. So the longer you have hospice, actually, the longer the person generally lives because the stress level comes down and it gives quality of life back to the family. Right. So there's a lot of that leftover. I didn't get the help I need trauma. But then when we're through most of that and they've told the story and that sort of thing, the structure goes something like, Let's have a look at your entire relationship with this person and all the other things that have been losses in your life, because we have lots of losses in our life. We don't recognize (laughs) we move, we change schools, we graduate, we get married and give up some of our space, you know, in our soul, in our house, gain some too. You know, we have those, how did those interact and how did you do with those? And then looking more specifically at the person who died in that relationship, and all of the undone, unsaid stuff, right? That's the stuff we hold on to, right? Right. If you don't do that, you're not going to be able to incorporate and move into new life, and you can't reorganize. Mm -hmm. And so I'll tell them, we're going to work through that stuff, and then we're going to reorganize your life around this person's active absence, but definite role in your heart and your head, because we all talk to dead people. We all refer to them all the time, right? And the first time I meet a client, I'll say, so when was the last time you talked to him? And they'll look at me like, you How know, you know? <laughs> did you know that? Because we all do, right? Of course we do. We don't all admit that we do that, but we do do that. No. And then now I incorporate, um, especially for intimate partner loss, you know, have you consulted someone to help you communicate? Because 80% of people who lose an intimate partner actually reach out to some kind of either medium or psychic or card reader or something to make that connection again but they don't tell their therapist they don't tell their friends and they definitely don't tell their minister or worship leader no 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 right? but they need that and of that can... pagan stuff of course it's right that we do with every christmas every year right yeah exactly so... of course. Yeah, but, but that doesn't fit into what you were talking about which are the rules around it right right so i incorporate that into so have you done that it's a and beautiful then, question oh, to you ask. know that well that's just <laughs> 
She's not great. What's lovely about that is, again, it's it's validating that activity and saying, hey, it's okay you did that. You're it's not crazy. It's absolutely okay. No, it's that's part of, it's part of the grief recovery process. It's how we do it. Hmm. We want to make sure they're okay. People want to validate that they made the right decisions, you know, and I'm not going to say it's real or not because that's up to them. Holy but shit, if they I, want to do that, do I totally know? support them. Do we know? Right. right. We're going to find that out later, maybe, right? Ah. But sure, go ahead and do that. That's okay. Does it make and you I'm going to support better? you in doing yeah. it. Yeah. Right. And then with intimate partner loss, we also talk about the loss of intimacy because that's also something therapists and hospice staff never talk about. They don't talk about it to prepare the couple. They don't generally try to help the couple maintain intimacy in any way during the illness and dying process. And then therapists and grief workers don't ask the person who's a survivor about it. And in the surveys I've done, survey says, right, hundred percent of them wanted to talk about it and wouldn't say it because they thought they'd think they were weird. And a hundred percent of the professionals won't ask about it because they are afraid of embarrassing the person. And so there's this, so right, the big chasm, isn't it, right in the middle? It is the elephant right? in the room. Totally right. Wow. Instead of the let me help you get into the bed so that you guys can hold each other until you can't do that anymore. And what has it been like? And how long has it been? And how long since they they got sick was it that you guys could even share a bed together or be intimate together? What what happened? What do you miss about that? My clients will tell me. The minute that tap is turned on, all holds barred or off because they can't talk about it with anyone else. Right? No. No, it's beautiful. And it's even the intimacy beyond the physical, like just it's all having, of that, it. having that closeness with someone. Right. It's the eye to eye. More. It's waking up with somebody next to you because typically mm. someone who's lost an intimate partner will say every morning when I wake up, they die all over again because they reach over and they're not there. Now, if you haven't had that loss, you wouldn't know that unless you worked with people who've had that loss. Mm. So tip of the day for anyone who does this work, there's your tip. But then when I, when we've worked through that, we do a goodbye letter and we, my client will, sp- and I will tell them, spend weeks on it. I want you to tell them all the things you needed to tell them. I want you to tell them all the things you wish they'd told you. I want you to tell them what you're going to do with the plans and what you're not going to do with the plans and what plans you think you might take up instead. And then they get it done and they bring it in or they bring it online because I'm totally telehealth now. And they read it out loud to me to total silence. And it's probably the most powerful moment in any therapy moment. And it stuns me every time. Mm. And we take that moment and then we move toward reorganizing. How do we make your life what you need it to be now? What things do you want to do? You've got now the grief card. You get to decide what you're going to do with your life. What are you going to fill it in with? What are you going to change? You can change nothing. You can change everything. I changed career path, spouses. My kids grew up. Thank God they all graduated, right? I'm a grandma. You can change things. You can watch the changes. It's up to you. This is your life now. What are you going to do with it? And so that's the process in a nutshell. It's not that simple. It's not that easy, but it is that that's the process. Sounds simple, doesn't it? 
Well, that's the beauty of a process that you can you can put a framework up. And then it's the difference between simple and easy. So here are here are the steps. I'm not saying that it's. it's I just I watched a wonderful documentary a couple of days ago on climbing Everest. Oh. Well, the process is simple. You get you get from you get to base camp first, and then you climb up and you acclimatize and you go back down and you go up to camp one and so there's a process there. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. No. And you might. No, my not first thought it. was just don't die, but well, you know, you're not going to find me on Everest. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's a whole different topic of conversation, but it's it's just illustrative of process gives you yeah. a framework, but not an ease of load. Like there's a lot to still unpack there. There is, there is. And you have to kind of adapt. And if someone can't get on base camp, you go back down and, you know, have a nice meal, and wait for everyone else to come back down. Yeah. Right. In that three or four weeks. Is, that letter <laughs> is such a beautiful idea. It's powerful. Yeah. I've, I've and seen then that. they have, mm-hmm, good. I was just going to say, I've seen that work in things like, uh, and sometimes it's with someone who's passed mm-hmm. and sometimes it's with someone who's estranged, like uh, uh, a man's relationship with his father. Right. And he can't have the conversation whether he has passed or whether there's just no connection anymore. Here's an opportunity to write that. And even in hypnosis, there are processes where you can effectively hallucinate that person in the room and have the conversation that you couldn't have. And, and in the important. trance state, in that trance state, it's real. Yeah. Yeah. It's I've real. seen it done. And that's it is the process of the saying that releases it, that lets you say, okay, I'm done with that part. And let me now figure out where I'm going. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I've the, the shoulders actually rise up afterward. Right. And the head gets a little bit taller and it doesn't make life so easy. any. you know, it's not like, Oh yeah, now it's all done. <laughs> You're but good the now. stuff is not following you around anymore. Mm. You're not carrying all of it because you found a place right. to put it. Right. It does make you less hyperreactive because you're not, you know, thinking that through all the time and running it through your head and not sleeping. Oh, yeah. Although former caregivers still don't sleep because they have post-caregiver syndrome and they've learned not to sleep. That's a whole nother ball of wax. <laughs> wow. <laughs> mm. And yeah. as therapists, we say, now you need to sleep eight hours a night. Yeah, don't don't say that to a griever and don't say that to a former caregiver because then they know you don't know yeah. what they've it would, it would be nice if you could, however. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at two in the morning, there's lots of good television on. And at four in the morning, when the sun starts to rise, lay down and get a little napski, right? That's, yeah, that's how just, it works. It's letting go of the rules again, isn't it? Yeah, the rules are just, they're dreadful. Mm. They are dreadful. I hadn't thought of all of those implicit structures that are in place until you mentioned like widow and grieving rules. And then as soon as you start to look at that, as soon as, (laughs) wow. What happens when a widow starts to date? What's the response by and large? Well, I I have experience with a friend who met her current husband very quickly after her previous husband passed and they just met and they were right for each other right and there was a lot of fallout for her 
She broke the widow rules. She certainly did. But she's and everyone a, else is an expert in what she needed. She's a very strong woman, though. So kudos to her. Tell her, greet her for me, please. Yes. Yeah. One rebel to another. Yes. And, but, but you are so you're so right that there's just a lot there for anyone to unpack in, in our culture, in our society, the way we're all brought up mm-hmm. in and around all of this stuff. But I think no matter what true. continent you're on. And also, I think that's true of a lot of things that we talk about in terms of how we're raised, whether it's by osmosis or by direct transmission in school or church or Mm -hmm. Cub Scouts or whatever. Absolutely. Mm. And that's why I bring my genealogy in, because I have a fair number of rebellious widows in my past. So I can pull them in. Yeah, no, she... I've got at least three greats and a great aunt who were married four times each. So yeah, I'm still below the curve <laughs> and I'm staying there. I don't want Stacy going anywhere. Let's not, let's be <laughs> Just, clear about that, but okay. right. It's not unheard of, right. It's just, it's not unheard of. It's what you need after someone you love has died. What do you need to do to, to get better? And if you fall in love with someone, great. If you're Betty White and you never do again and you raise dogs, great. You're on the spectrum. Jill on one side, Betty White on the other. I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so much in there to unpack, Jill. <laughs> but it's beautiful. I, I, a couple of times as you've been talking, I've thought about my own personal experiences in and around the moment of death. And I can remember my grandfather's passing it was this was the one that was in hospital he went in for a small procedure and didn't come back out and it was a horrendous experience from the medical side of things but there was one moment when he was right at the point of transition and all of the noises were happening and I was fairly aware that that was okay and but other members of my family were freaking out right but it wasn't my place to tell them because how do you do that? Is it's then I'm telling someone it's all okay when it's not all okay. But there was a nurse that came in and she said, sometimes all the all that person needs to hear is that it's okay to go now. Mm-hmm. Give them permission to be released. Mm. And that was uh, okay. Now I can see the beauty in this. Mm-hmm. It's okay, okay to go and I'm going to be okay. Mm. I'm going to be okay. And that was, and I can remember him passing and he just said the whole time over and over, I love you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was okay. And so the process for me after that was the anger at the medical community. Yeah. And some, it's righteous anger sometimes. It's a, well, it was very righteous. Right. And then you deal with that, but you, sometimes you just, you need to take action about that. Yeah. And I was working on that with somebody today. Do you want to invest the energy into that? Or do you want to just work through the anger with me and then we'll let it go? It's up to you. I'm not telling you which is the right thing to do. But if the medical community screwed up, then if you want to call them out, do. Maybe mm. they'll not do it to somebody else. And and maybe that's the the thing that you can get out of this is preventing the next. Mm-hmm. Mm. But it's just it's interesting in having the discussion that 
there is the ability to sit with one's own memories about this kind of stuff and right unpack that right I've, I've been present for more deaths than I can count but if I go back and recall each of them everyone is very unique and different but by and large they all some of the same things happen and if the family's prepared it can be such a a really even if you're not religious a sacred moment to be able to watch that transition happen right yeah. to be able to to let That's them go religion. yeah it's way beyond religion so you're just sending them off and typically you'll see the person who's dying reaching out um you know and and you can just tell they're seeing someone reaching out for them and they go with them um if you're lucky and they've been at home they can tell you who's been to visit before they die because sometimes those people come visit a couple three days or four days beforehand right so linda told us that our good friend Mari was, had come to see her and one of our dogs and they told her that she was going to be dying in two days and two days later she was gone by noon so well, i'm not going to say they didn't tell her right and she was looking forward to seeing Mari, so that's okay and i'm glad that they went off together it's a good thing yeah, yeah there's, there's there's so much there that is almost unknowable and and that's part of the beauty i think mm-hmm. try and unpack it and we try and understand it and then what, what do we get out of answering all of that no i don't know so it's it'll nice. be okay when i go yeah that's kind of where you go my grandmother actually had a full code heart attack um many years before her own death my grandfather died uh, most unfortunately because of medical malpractice on mother's day of a burst appendix and it did not go over well he had just retired and they had just built their home on their little plot, their land on a lake in Florida. But the old house was still there, the old cracker house. It was solid. It was just wood and it was not a special house and it was empty. And she went home from the hospital and burnt that sucker to the ground. She was, her anger was pretty visible. Mm. And then she brought on a heart attack. She didn't have heart problems. She had no blockages. She had a massive heart attack and she was out for about eight minutes according to all the medical records and they brought her back and she punched that doctor's lights out. Nope. I was with my husband. How dare you? I want to go back. So, you know, I'm not going to argue that that's not real. That's not what I approach in therapy, but for my own base of this is dying, I'm not going to say that's not real. I'm going to say I'm okay with that, that idea. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to encourage clients to tell me about it if that's where they are. I'm not going to share that. But when I do grief work, I really do. I am transparent. Now, my clients find me because they know I'm a widow because I'm all over the freaking Internet. But when they reference that, well, I'm going to get there because you did great. Now, you're not going to do what I do. You're going to do your own path. But I'm glad to hear that you want to recover and you want to change things. Hmm. And there's. There's no point in any therapist ever not telling a grief client that they've never had grief or we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you because you will shut that client down and they're going to go find another therapist. That whole (laughs) idea of being that one step, step removed is so abhorrent to me. It is to me as well. And especially in grief work, all the other kinds too. Right. Right. 
we had a young therapist who was doing a grief group with me. And she said, Jill, my parents are living. My grandparents are living. My dog's alive. Because we share the first day and the therapists go first. We share about our own loss. Mm-hmm. And I said, but you broke up with your boyfriend. She's like, but these are all widows and widowers. They're going to they're gonna think I'm minimizing. I said, try it. Let's see what happens. She shared it. Don't you know, 10 widows and widowers who were, had all been married for huge lengths of time. I'm like, you know what? Thank you for sharing. It's that is the same experience, right? Now we know that you know. They just wanted to know that she'd been there too. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a big loss, but you got to acknowledge loss. And it's exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? It's a loss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Loss doesn't have to be death. And it doesn't have to be people. No. Pet loss is a huge thing. Hey, there's another set of rules right there about how you should treat the loss of a pet. And I'll get a new one tomorrow. Oh, well, I've just seen so much belittling around that. Like, why are you feeling so much? It's just a, it's just a dog. Really? You have no idea about my connection with that being. Could be you a know, could be a pot plant. <laughs> right. You know, that dog, when you get home from work or come home from vacation, your friends do not meet you at the door, jumping up and down, licking your face and peeing on the floor. Nobody <laughs> does that but your dog. That's going to be a I, unique friend if they're peeing on the floor. <laughs> that's exactly right. That level of attachment is like no other, right? And that's why so many people adopted pets during the pandemic. They needed eyes to look back at them and a heartbeat to match theirs. Connection, absolutely. Right. And if it's somebody whose only connection at home is their pet, They've just lost their intimate partner because that's who they tell everything to. Yeah. Share their bed. Sharing moments. Right. Right. That dog followed him into the bathroom probably every single time. Yeah, mine does. Yeah, Yeah. she does that first thing in the morning. Thank thank you. I had the door shut. (laughs) And they just push it right open. Yeah. Yeah. I have five of them staring at me. Yeah, I don't think I could do five. I've got a 10-month-old puppy. And she doesn't yeah. know how strong she is yet. Yeah. So Ours are all tiny. We've got tiny troops. Yeah, this one this one we thought was going to be medium-sized. We, we rescued her thinking that she was an Amstaff. But we think she might be, there's there's a, a breed called uh, uh, Bull Arab. It's an Australian breed. Oh, my goodness. And it's the original name was the Australian pig dog. It was bred in the outback for hunting wild pigs. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, the the gene pool is American Staffy, Greyhound, and German Shorthead Pointer. So it's a hunting. That's a big dog. It's a huge dog. So we don't know if we got one of those because she hasn't stopped growing it. <laughs> and she's and she's. Playfully a puppy, but big, like almost 30 kilos. I don't have any idea what that is in pounds. Uh, but yeah, double and a bit more. And uh, just mm-hmm. this, bundle, this bundle of running through the house. Okay, stop. Yeah, oh, we buy you. ours clothes in size extra small to large, and the large is, you know, maybe that big. Uh-huh. Right? They're they're small. Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about 20 uh, paws on the floor. That'd be a bit much for us, I think. <laughs> 
it sounds really cute, but you know, we have, we have outdoors, we have two sets of glass doors so they can fall out of the house at any time. And that helps. And in Southern California, the weather usually cooperates most of the time. So, yeah. I think I'm, I'm in a similar climate from, from my memory of visiting Southern California, where I'm living now is if you grabbed uh, the United States and rotated it 180 degrees. Yep. Same kind climate. Of, that's kind of where I am. Mm-hmm. So it's my it's friends very, from Australia are in the Sydney area and the Blue Mountains. The Blue Mountains are beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, like astoundingly beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. My my sister and her husband are right in the middle of Sydney, so they're dealing with all of the fun and games. Oh, it's in, looked awful. In and around, well, I'm I'm blessed. So I'm I'm on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. So it's regional. It's all uh, tourist based. Yeah. And almost no, I mean, not no effect. There's been significant effect in terms of economy and so forth, but not not the level of transmission and illness and death. So it's it's interesting to hear stories from other parts of the world where it's just been a different experience. Yeah, but it's everywhere, everywhere, and this is the upsetting thing for me when you take out the numbers is just the the fractures in society and the schisms and. And that's another loss. And it's like, oh, like it's terrible. We don't need to make it worse. We've got families that won't sit down at the table together anymore, even when they can. I have an older man who is a friend and mentor here, and he doesn't go to his recreational pursuit anymore because he's got a belief system that's slightly different Mm. and not accepted. Yeah. So yeah, friends, family, all of these fractures, and again, so there's there's something else that there is going to be grieving in and around for a long time, right? Aside from the illness and death side of COVID, grieving for these relationships and and wow, it's and grieving for a sense of safety and security, and like yes, you know, okay, over here Disneyland's back open. Is it really a good idea? Mm. Right, that kind of thing feeling safe in school or not safe in school. And kids are wise to this, even the second graders. Oh, they're sharp. And talk about it. And it's it's sad. And they know why so-and-so is not coming around anymore because this has happened in the family and, and that schism is too big. Is, yeah, that, is that starting to come in into your practice or practices around you, that like the, the grief in and around that kind of a thing? Oh, it's been ongoing for better part of 18 months okay yeah because some people took it seriously right away and some people didn't and those folks just and then when there was family things even when they could make pods together and they could join pods it was no you can't be in our pod because you're not right our office fortunately is all in and everyone is on the same page because we have to be um and we have some staff working back in the office now. I can't, I had COVID and I have lung damage and I'm a long hauler. So I'm out for the foreseeable future. But yeah, it's, we've got, I've got little people, you know, they, I was seeing them for other issues. The grandparents got sick. They were hospitalized. One died, one lived. And someone in the family was identified as the probable carrier. And now everyone's turned on that person. And there's a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. There really is. Yeah. It speaks to the need for these kind of processes and spaces where we can share our story and what we're feeling and then 
have some kind of a path forward. And figure it out, figure out how to re-include or heal or whatever it is that family needs to do. Yeah. And now we're coming up on the holidays and it's going to be that much more intense anywhere you go because everybody's looking at who's going to do what with whom. Mm. And it's going to depend in some families on status of different things. So it's hard. Yeah, we we have just the, the the dilemma of travel here at the moment. It sounds it sounds amazing. It's 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 positively Cold War Germany at the moment here. We can't get across certain borders. I've seen that. Yeah, I just totally an interesting see that. dynamic. Look, I I don't profess to have the solution or any deep understanding. I have my thoughts on the matter, which I don't push right. on anyone. Because this is one of those things I, I love to have the conversation as long as it's a meaningful contribution mm-hmm. rather than, a, no, you can't say that because I said this. That, that's that not helpful. doesn't help. That's that doesn't helpful. help. I've been watching some of those reunions at the airports there, you know, people who couldn't get home. And, you know, it's heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand why different governments did what they needed to do. I do. But still, it's, it's heart-wrenching, the impact of it. It is. Um, my mum is forever saying to me, I just, I, I, I want to see the grandkids. So she wants to see my children. Uh, and yet there are difficulties. We actually drove, so we often do a, a road trip, which would effectively be from the top of California to the bottom of California. Okay, not terrible. Not terrible, but it's, it's, it's enough. Long, yeah. You know, maybe a little bit longer than that. But, you know, we do that over three days. We take our time. We stop places. Well, we got to my sister's place in, in Sydney last time. We tried to take the trip to mum and dad's who were down in Victoria, so southern, mm-hmm. uh, southeast. And uh, then we got told that my son had been flagged as being in an area that was called a red zone. And that was this, it was this wonderful where he was nowhere near where anything happened. One person had sneezed and he was in an island outside of the city. But, but they changed the classification from metropolitan area to greater city area. So he was in the he was in the red zone. So we couldn't go any further. And and the previous time people weren't able to get back home. So we had to turn around and drive 15 hours in one day to get home so we could get across the border. <laughs> okay, we're not we're not trying that again. No, no, everybody's home for the time being. Yeah, yeah, we're just yeah. going to stay here. So yeah, now we it's went a probably nine. We went, I think, about nine months without seeing my grandchildren. My daughter yeah. would sometimes drive by and you know stand on the street with them, and we'd wave from inside the house. Oh, really? Yeah, because they were little, and she worked in a locked psychiatric unit where. There were lots of people and I'm a long hauler and couldn't be around them. So we did waves and um, Zooms. So, yeah, just being able to be present for birthday parties has been really special oh, this year. Yeah. Oh, you have been present. That's great. Well, that's changed. That changed. Yeah. We don't have and we're all in the same state anyway. But, yeah, our states declared nobody can come, but they didn't actually do anything with it. <laughs> we had some really we had some really interesting uh, mandates that were we, we were told things were mandatory but then when you looked into the legislation it wasn't mandatory and, and it got to the point of absurdity because we couldn't work out what what was allowed well even what was allowed but how is it actually functionally supposed to help the situation mm-hmm. oh, I remember 
I, I can walk to the beach. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful place to live. I walked back from the beach and there's a a, a sidewalk bar and I thought, oh, I'll have a beer. And when I was drinking, I'll have a beer. And I walked in, he said, have you got a mask? I said, mate, I've just walked on the beach. I said, I don't have to come in. I'm not going to cause any problems. I just thought I'd support the economy effectively and have a beer. I can have a beer at home. And he said, come in, sit there. You can't come up to the bar to order because when you sit at the table, you don't have to be wearing a mask. But when you walk in from the front, you have to be wearing a mask to come up and order. But it was all within about two square metres. Right. And so, so I said, do? okay, I said, look, whatever, I don't mind. I don't want you to get into trouble, but none of this makes any sense. And he said, we don't even know what we're allowed to do. So that's why a lot of people stopped going out because we just were, what, 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 what but that's. Yep. So outside yep. of whether you think that a mask works or not, or any of that kind of, what mm-hmm. does the science here say? What does the science there say? How does it make any difference if I'm, if the front door is the same distance from the bar as the seat that I'm sitting in and I have to wear a mask there but not here? Like, How does this work? Logically, this doesn't make any sense. We're all so confused. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a whole lot of that. Yeah. I'd say everyone. We just did, we just did a whole lot of delivery. In fact, we had meetings for our staff. We have 35 therapists. So we would do like um, happy hour once a quarter and I would order meals of their choice from the delivery place of their choice. So everyone got meals at the same time and then we could eat together and right. um, relax together, right? Gumby, we can be flexible. We can. <laughs> and you and I are lucky because we can do our work via this medium, which is wonderful. Yep. Although I have found that the vast majority of people who want to work with me want to sit face to face. So it's a, it has created some drama but it's not the end of the world yeah see my grief clients they like being online and my dementia clients need it oh because they can't leave the house no that makes a lot of sense the grief clients don't want to walk past a waiting room with their eyes red so they're much happier online and they don't want to drive after a session with me they want to and Mm. they can do that at home or even at the office I, i remember so I've, I've sat with people in car parks to say, okay, dri- driving now, no, don't. It's right. not good. Take, take a moment, go for a walk. There's a block. Go and walk around that block a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Before you attempt it. Because grievers make terrible drivers. Oh. They really I, do, you know? When you start really digging into what's going on for people under the surface and under all of the stories and layers and roles and responsibilities, and it gets real yeah, it's not a good time to drive. It's not. It's not. And initial grief, you get brain fog and your uh, hand-eye coordination starts to disappear. And, oh, yeah. you know, hitting the brake on time is kind of a trick. And remembering what to do first is a trick. Right? All of it hits you globally. And most people don't know that either because we don't talk about that. No. And this is the practical stuff. Right. We don't tell them you're going to forget to pay your bills. Please put them on, you know, auto pay. That's something I do with grievers. Have you, are you paying the bills? If not, let's sit down and you put them on auto pay right now so that you don't have to worry about the lights going out. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have food in the house? Let's order some right now. Mm. It's basic social work. We're right at the bottom of Maslow. <laughs> yes. Yes. See, that's just the fundamental that. stuff that might not, it, without the experience, that it's not obvious it's not cerebral at first it's just have they eaten yeah right go get a bagel and sit down and we'll start talking when i see you take a bite 
I'll wait. It's okay. It's not hard, but you have to know to do it. Of course. Right. And not be one of those therapists who says, I don't allow my clients to eat or drink while I'm working with them. Do, do they exist? They do. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. There's some super snark over here about some of that stuff. I'm like, wow. they're at home. And if they're hungry, they get to eat. In my office, we have snacks. We expect people to have full tummies because you can't work on emotions no. when you're starving. <laughs> Sorry, you just caught me there because I'm just amazed. I uh, see. I got into this work from a point of a, a place of compassion. So right. when when you tell me that something like that is even possible, it, my brain stops working. Right. I mean, there need to be some rules. Like if you're going to step out and go to the bathroom, please close the door. Well, yes, we're all online. That stuff has to happen. But you're allowed to eat your breakfast or lunch if you need to. Maybe don't come in with the full hamburger and get it all over the furniture. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, we keep in our office, we have hot drinks, cold drinks and snacks. Because, you know, kids after school, they need something in their tummies before they can talk to someone. Yeah, of course. I, I would, so I would do the grownups. I would often take the, uh, especially with the kids, take just take them across the road to the cafe, get a hot drink, something for the child as well, if there's a child involved in the session, and then go for a walk. Right. Uh, the, the therapy's happening right now while we're talking. I've it's had, the relationship. I know, I've had the most amazing results for children by going for a walk, talking to the parent. And, of course, the child is listening to all of it and taking it all in, even though they're pretending they're not and they don't want to be here anymore. And, mm-hmm. and then the, like, the most profound changes, like with bedwetting, like kids that have never had a dry bed. Right. And it's just, that's just how profound that, that that relationship is, the experience of it is. Experience then, of accepting them for who they are and well, here's some ideas to work with. That's and you don't have to is. sit quietly while I'm talking to you, so you're not getting in trouble every two seconds. <laughs> That's always a good one when there's children in the right. parents. The parents have got their rules about how the child should behave in the therapeutic context. <laughs> let, let them play. We'll just have a chat. Right. Let me get the crayons out. Yes, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Uh, not the slime. We don't allow slime. That's so oh, to everything. My daughter's into slime at the moment. She, she had the wonderful idea the other day. And I couldn't work out why the house had this terrible chemical smell. She mixed nail polish in with her slime to get a colour. Oops. Now, it actually went okay. It didn't stain anything. I don't know how she managed to do this because her desk is clean. So I don't know how she managed, but it smelled like... Nail polish. The whole house smelled like nail polish, which is wonderful for my sinuses. But I couldn't work out what she'd done. <laughs> how, many, how many layers of nail polish did she put on? Where did she even get nail polish from? My wife came home and said she put it into the slime. Oh, okay, right. Now it makes sense. Yeah, now it makes sense. So slime, yeah, my daughter's into slime at the moment. I can understand why it's not in your... That's, it stains sometimes. Oh, it's, yeah. got a, it's got an interesting smell and it's got a good stain. And Yep, no, it it's out. Everything. Crayons are in. That's wonderful. Where can people find more of your information and maybe get in touch if they need to or look into your books and so forth? My website is jilljohnsonyoung.com. Super simple. No hyphen, no caps, nothing. 
Um, and then I have one for the rebellious widow, which is the rebellious widow.com. And on that one, it has um, handouts for how to manage an illness and create a medical notebook and things to tell the doctor. And then how um, it's got handouts online for the dying process. And it's got handouts for the grief process afterwards that you can download and anyone can download them. It's not restricted to the book. Yep. Beautiful. That's wonderful. I'm going to have to have a look into that material myself just to improve how I understand it. And the Rebellious Widow is available in Australia without having to order it from the States. They, can, they produce it there. You can order it from a local independent bookseller if you choose. That's wonderful. Yes. I've, I've recently discovered that it's no more expensive to buy locally now. We've all of the um, cut priced craziness with Amazon has disappeared. So we're back to ordering locally. Very nice. Yeah, because mm. the post from here to there is, oh, my goodness, the fees are outrageous. They are. And I mean, I think Amazon used to just make a loss. So now that they're, they're not doing that anymore because they've got their market share, it all just costs the same. Mm-hmm. So. Nice. Yes. So you can find me and then my my private practice is on there. My emails are on there. It's It's user friendly. It is. I've actually gone and had a look. <laughs> Yeah. I get very just excited. Got revamped. I get so, excited yeah. when I see a website that actually works. It's right. sort of a side hustle of mine being interested <laughs> in websites and its previous life. Right. So when, when I, I see, wanna, a, I don't like the ones you go on and you click and it's like, oh, but wait, there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah. What am I supposed to do now? Right. Right. Yeah. How do I get in touch with this person? Where's the information? Mm-hmm. Oh, we could talk about that for for quite a long time. That's that's one of the things that I'm very interested in is just communicating and, and via all these different mediums. So I'll, I will share your information in the show notes so people will be able to click through and find you Thank quite you. easily. Um, yeah. Joe, I really appreciate your time. That is one of the most impactful discussions I've had. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.